Hello fellow two-wheelers and welcome to this week's Motos and Friends podcast by Ultimate Motorcycling. This episode is brought to you by the gorgeous new third generation Suzuki Hayabusa. Widely regarded as the ultimate sport bike, the new Hayabusa is a refined rocket ship. It is the quickest and most technologically advanced Hayabusa yet. The beautifully refined swooping bodywork is not just gorgeous to look at, it's also the most aerodynamic Hayabusa yet. Check it out at suzukicycles.com or of course you could always swoop down to your nearest Suzuki dealer and check it out for yourself. This week we bring you an absolutely fascinating sort of all-in-one episode. It's an adventure ride for the ages right here in our backyard of the Mojave Desert in Southern California. As a brief teaser, I can tell you that there is such a thing as the Mojave Megaphone. It is a true oddity, and interestingly, it's not even that well known locally. It's a large, can only be described as metal art object that looks the same as its name implies. It was placed in the middle of nowhere, California. Who placed it, how they did it, when, and even why, all remain mysteries to this day. Editor Don Williams has heard rumours of the Mojave Megaphone for years and finally decided to go and visit it. Persuading our always-up-for-anything off-road fast guy, Associate Editor Jess McKinley, they sourced a BMW F850 GS Adventure and a KTM 890 Adventure R to compare and review and headed into the Mojave to find out exactly what's there. If you want to check out Don's pictures and story, you can visit our website at ultimatemotorcycling.com. This episode will, for sure, make you want to put the daily grind to one side, drop everything, and just get out and go for a ride. It certainly did that for me. Are you ready for this? The all-new 2022 Suzuki Hayabusa motorcycle is here. Widely regarded as the ultimate sport bike, the third generation Hayabusa by Suzuki melds two generations of refinement, resulting in the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa yet. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the new Hayabusa gives riders electronic rider aids, like the quick shifter and cruise control systems that simultaneously increase performance and comfort. With even stronger acceleration, the Hayabusa's 1340cc inline four-cylinder engine and updated driveline deliver unmatched sport bike performance. And, staying true to its iconic design, the new Hayabusa's straighter and sharper lines make it the most aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Plus, it comes in three new head-turning color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki genuine accessories you can choose from. These revolutionary superbikes are flying off the showroom floor, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now, or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. The ultimate ride awaits. So you guys are going to be talking about a recent trip to the desert you had. What bikes were you riding? I was on the KTM Adventure 890R, so the 2021 version, right before we had to... Uh, to give it back and don you were on the bmw yeah well i mean we did switch back and forth but uh this was one of those difficult to organize events where we never seemed to be able to get the ktm 890 adventure r and the bmw f 850 
GS adventure at the same time. And one would go away and then one would come back and one would go away and one would come back. And uh, the original plan was to ride from my house in Los Angeles out to where our destination was. But by the time we were uh, able to do it, it was uh, December and the light was too short. So we had to uh, have a couple of uh, truck queens and put the two uh, the two bikes in the back of Jess's truck and and drive out there and that was uh just fun just loading the bikes I wasn't sure they would both fit but Jess assured me they would and and they did our starting point was Ludlow Cafe uh and Ludlow is a little town if you want to call it a town it's a little collection of buildings on Interstate 40 between Barstow and the Colorado River and uh, the first thing I was concerned about was the safety of Jess's truck when we were gone. And I was like, well, you know, there's all sorts of unsavory, strange characters out in the desert. There's more coyotes than, than roadrunners. And so we were, I was worried about it. And uh, we went to the Ledlow Cafe and I hadn't been able to get them on the phone. And so I was just hoping that we would be able to park in their parking lot. And the woman greeted me and she was very friendly. But she seemed kind of confused as to why I would ask if it was okay to park in their parking lot, because in her mind, it's like, well, who cares if you park in her parking lot? And uh, I said, well, I'm from LA and parking is always a big deal. And so anyway, we were able to, uh, we found a great place to unload, the perfect spot to park and making the place look a little bit busier than it might've been uh, by having a truck in the parking lot. And uh, we unloaded the bikes and we headed off. Now, Crucero Road, is on a map, but there's no signs for it. It's just a, a dirt road that runs through the desert. And uh, I'll let Jess pick up on what it was like once we started getting on the dirt, which was immediately north of the of Interstate 40. Well, b before you before you do that, can I ask you what what was the sort of the planned ride, and and was there any sort of you know reason for it? Was there any particular direction you were going in, or? Well, I was perusing YouTube one day. Uh, somebody posted a little piece on ArsTeca.com about something called the Mojave Megaphone. Now, I've lived my whole life going out to the desert. My parents, <laughs> were first when they were first married, lived out in the desert. So I have a, a great connection with the desert, but I had never heard of the Mojave Megaphone. The Mojave Megaphone is this man-made piece of, I'll just say art, that someone mounted up on the top of a uh, hill of rocks about 20 miles from the nearest paved road, uh, which happens to be north of Ludlow. And uh, I decided that uh, Jess and I, this would be a perfect opportunity to get a little time in on the BMW and the KTM and find out how those work as adventure bikes. And that, that going out to see this uh, artwork installation would be, uh, a great way to, to, to test them. And, and it turned out that it definitely was a good way to test them. Okay, so sorry to interrupt. Jess, you were gonna go ahead with your thoughts on, what was it, Lucerne Road? Yeah, Crucero Road. But first off, we're not the only unsavory characters in Ludlow. Um, you know, that's like a state, it's a stagecoach route, you know, uh, over time. So it is, it's got its share of uh, passers through like us, but, like Don mentioned, uh, the gal at the Ludlow Cafe was awesome. It was just a non sequitur for her to say, of course you can park here. 
I thought she was going to be more concerned that we were from LA than that we were leaving a, a truck in her parking lot. But like Don mentioned, we headed due north on Crucero Road. And you know, these bikes are highly capable. So if you've got a pretty smooth off-road surface, you can do some really blistering speeds. And you know, before just recently, we have had no rain in Southern California. So it is dry as a bone. So if unless there's a lot of wind, you just have a dust plume that will hang for miles and miles. So we kind of spread out a little bit. Um, but instantly, you know, the any sign of civilization, which is really just a 40 freeway, just fades away in the rear view. And it's just wide open country. And like Don mentioned, we're going to this thing that he called artwork. We really don't know what it is. It's unexplained. And even on the internet, there's not a whole lot. We just know that a lot of strange things happen in the desert. And we're going to go check out one of those strange things. Were you guys carrying extra fuel or, or did you make any sort of preparations? I mean, tell me you took some water and... <laughs> I, okay, so I knew that Don was planning this trip. So I took preparations. I had water in my camelback. I had a few snacks. Okay. Both bikes are kind of these dromedary type of two-wheeled vehicles. They can hold a lot of fuel. Um, okay. Although the KTM, we didn't gas it up. I think that we had about three gallons. Um, and, it, you know, just about any bike gets 40 miles to the gallon, these adventure bikes. So you know, we had 120 miles of range. I think we only thought we had 35 miles of off-road, but um, reality threw us a little curveball there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> Just Mr. Prepare did not show up with a motorcycle full of fuel. Right. Well, it, it was in the back of my truck, and we did have gas stations around us, so the, uh, the optionality was there. So the road that we're going on is, is straight as a ruler and, and almost flat as a ruler, and it's just a great great ride it's funny Jess was mentioning the dust hanging in the air and it was and Jess would always take off right away when we stopped Jess is much faster rider than I am so he was he wanted to make sure he, he got out of the dust well he didn't need to take off very long before me because he was gone before I was able to really get going on the bikes uh, it took me a little while to get my sea legs on the big adventure bikes uh, back I hadn't ridden them off-road lately much and certainly not on this road that was it was a dirt road but it's also a dirt and sand road it's not like a hard hard packed dirt road or even like a gravel road it's a road where uh people aren't familiar with the desert desert isn't just like the sahara desert i mean parts of it are like the sahara desert if you go out to glamis but most of the desert is like a, a light sand and but more hard packed than that and it's a, a constant series of valleys and peaks there's mountain ranges and there's there's dry riverbeds so as you're going down the road you're kind of constantly crossing these little tributaries that i've never seen water in and most people have never seen water in so you'll be going at 40 and then all of a sudden you'll hit sand and as uh, just pointed out to me when we were talking sand is the kryptonite of adventure bikes and the bigger the adventure bike, the worse. Unfortunately, we were on you know the 850, 890 size bikes and not the, the 1200s and 1300s, but it was still, the sand was tougher for me than it was for Jess. And uh, primarily that's because Jess is more comfortable crashing at a high speed than I am. And so because of that, I'm not excited. You know, it's, it, it, when I'm going, I'm going 40, I'm feeling good. And all of a sudden I hit the sand and the front end starts going in a direction other than the one I want to go. 
And so instead of being brave like Jess and just whipping on the throttle, full throttle and continuing on your way and straighten out, I kind of roll it off, which of course makes things worse. But at least I didn't crash at 40 miles an hour, whereas Jess is like, ah, no problem on the gas and he's gone. So he would always be very, very, very far in front of me. His envelope of comfort on those bikes is, is very high and mine is medium. I'm probably faster than we have. I'm sure I am faster than the average person would be on one of those bikes, but compared to Jess, no way. So he was able to really, he can tell you what those bikes are like at, you know, high speeds, like 60, 70 miles an hour on one of those dirt roads, where I'm able to tell you what it's like at 40. And when one person's going 70 and one person's going 40, the gap going across, you know, a, a 10 mile valley gets pretty, pretty far, pretty fast. So it was good because we were able to ride our own pace. And now one of the funny things was we was coming up to the first, we came up to a dry lake bed and that was fun. Uh, it was, it's called Broadwell Lake. And Jess, it's fun to watch Jess. We would, if you've seen the movie on any Sunday, they showed the uh, land speed record, the, the guy, the little bike going across the uh, Salt Lake Flats, the, the plume of dust. Well, that's what Jess looked like to me. This, you know, you didn't hear him or anything. It was just this whoosh, you know, this, this bike going across. And it was really cool. And uh, although when I was on the road, I don't know, Jess, did you see this? There was a huge hole in the road. I mean, if you had hit it, it would be a bad day. You know what? I actually got off of the road and just went out into the dry lake bed because it's um, it's kind of hard to not want to do that. It's like fresh powder if you're a skier um, because you have this really smooth dry lake bed and great traction. And so I was just doing these big S curves out in the middle of the dry lake bed. And you can get lean angle as if you're on a sport bike on a track, but you're on an adventure bike on dirt. And so that lean angle sensation is just awesome. You feel like you're a jet fighter pilot. So I was doing a bunch of those S curves. I wasn't even on some of the road for that. So I didn't see that big hole. Thank goodness, because I could have fallen into it, I guess. Yeah, that, <laughs> at that point, I actually also pulled off the road and said, I'm not going to stay on this road because who knows what's there. But it was, it was big. It was probably four feet in diameter and, you know, the four or five feet down. So you might jump wow. it, you might make it, but boy, you wouldn't want to find out. And uh, wow. yeah, so I was, you know, I was able to do, I was doing 70 or so across the dry lake bed and that was, it felt fun. It was really fun to get going again, that speed. Uh, the temperatures were perfect. It was a 65 degree day. So we weren't too hot. We weren't too cold, uh, you know? And so it was, that was, that was fun. And as we got past it, the first, I had seen pictures of where the Mojave megaphone were but we didn't have it like on GPS. You know, I kind of wanted to under plan everything so we can kind of enjoy the experience rather than going, okay, we're going here. Now it's going here, you know, and have everything mapped out for us. Just kind of play it by ear where you, you, you get to go and see it. And so I knew what it looked like from the road. At least I imagined what I did from photos. So I, so we were going along one road and I was like, oh, I think it's up here coming up. And then we come up and no, it didn't look like that. It looks different, you know, and the, 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 the rocks are farther away from the road than I think in the picture. So continue on, continue on. And, and there was a Y in the road where you'd come over a little parking area, not like a parking lot, but just like an area that's kind of a little clearer that you would park the bikes. And I also told Jess, who was way ahead, uh, you know, if you get to railroad tracks, you've gone too far because it was before the railroad tracks. So we're going and we're going. And, and Jess did see the, the Y in the road, although he went past it. 
And I think there's a sign out there that you were looking at, Jess. I don't know. I was just having fun. <laughs> See, that's, <laughs> that's the problem when I'm leading. <laughs> we're doing our own pace. But you had stopped. You had stopped. Yes, yes, I, yes. I had stopped there. There was a sign. Um, but this was all new territory for me. This portion of the desert um, is all new to me. So I was just kind of, you know, waiting and, yeah, waiting for you to catch up and to see if I'm on the right track or not. Right. And so as it turned out, where that Y was, it looked like the Y in my head that I go, oh, this is it. And I looked up and way up on top of this big giant mound of rocks was the was the Mojave megaphone. And I could you could you could see it clearly because it's above it's above the horizon basically. It's at the peak. So it it shows up and it was backlit by the sun and, and it looked, you know, kind of like the it's like it was like seeing the monolith in 2001. You know, it was really I like, oh wow, that's it. That's cool. So we ride the bikes over and we park them. And you're looking at this big hill of rocks and you're kind of thinking, how am I going to get up this? You know, do you just climb up it? I mean, it's it looks pretty far up there. And you, as you get closer, you see that there's like kind of a trail through the rocks. But when you're going up, you're on rocks the whole time. It's not like you're on a dirt trail. You're on you're on rocks and you're climbing up rocks. And if you fall, it's a bad day in the rocks. But uh, we were able to cl climb up to the top and the climb actually seemed easier, you know, considering we were wearing, you know, adventure boots and adventure gear. You know, the climb was actually easier than I expected it to be. And we got up to the top and, and there it was. It's called the Mojave Megaphone, but um, it really looks like a Venturi. If you think of just kind of how old, you know, old carburetors are, are constructed, it's, it's a cone with the middle section and then the exact identical cone on the other side. So at first glance, it looks like a, a rocket engine. Perhaps this is some sort of, you know, Navy or Air Force, you know, shrapnel. It's been left out in the desert for years and years from testing. Um, it's about eight feet long and you get up to it and you look at it and you're like, this was constructed um, by some sort of artisan that was welded together. It must weigh hundreds of pounds. I have yeah, they, they estimate 800 pounds. Yeah. Wow. And the goat trail that Don just described getting up there, I don't know how you would get up there. And for example, the cone is made out of, it looks like a custom welded two-stroke exhaust pipe. It's all of these um, <laughs> angular pieces that are flat, but that are welded together and constructed to make a perfect cone on each side. So Except they're much thicker than a, than a, a two-stroke exhaust they're like heavy gauge steel oh yeah this is probably over a quarter inch thick plate steel wow so somebody went to a lot of effort to make this thing absolutely so we tried to figure out was it constructed in place was it built in pieces and carried up um what would the tooling be to do it in place it's set they they bored they he she whoever did this yeah um, it could be aliens could be it <laughs> we have no idea <laughs> Uh, they bored into the rock, so they had some sort of auger drill to bore into the rock. They put in metal posts and then welded, mounted this uh, megaphone structure onto these two posts and welded it all in place. Yeah, I don't know, helicopters, UFOs, I'm not sure what could have wow. brought it there, but it's definitely, and we call it artwork because we don't know any other way to describe it. It could have some sort of existential use that we don't know of right when did it first appear 
There's no date on it. And Don did a little bit of research, but there's not much out there, is there? No, I, I did as much as I could. And, and nobody seems to have like a definitive date on when somebody first saw it. But there's no sign to see it. You know, there's no like Havagi megaphone this way. Mm-hmm. And nobody seems to know when somebody first saw it. So uh, that's, that part's a mystery too. Um, some people try to date it back to the 1950s, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's all rusty. You know, it's got a few bullet holes in it, and that's kind of a sign of older times. Uh, but it, yeah, it, the thing that Jess had talked when we were up there talk, marveling at it was it's hard to imagine them, a group of guys, because it would be guys. No way women would put that thing up there. That is a guy deal, I, I guarantee you. And <laughs> Could have been Amazonian women. We have no idea. Yeah, even the, even the, they have better sense than that. And okay. so... <laughs> either i don't see how even a bunch of guys climb up there and put that up there uh but if they did if it was welded in place it just said well how did they get that much power up to the top of that mountain to to power welding for that and how much how long that would take and it's nicely welded it's not like it's a sloppily done thing and even all those pieces one by one would be a, a heavy so a heavy heavy load but it would be doable like holding them in place while you're welding them and uh, it's it's a great mystery as to who did it why they did it how they did it and the fact that there had to be multiple people involved and no one has ever claimed credit for it you'd think usually when you have a group of people that somebody's going to tell somebody and then the cat is let out of the bag and then you all know how it had happened but in, in this case from all the research i've done nobody knows who what where well, they know where, and they know who, what, and why, or how, and that's that's the mystery of of the Mojave megaphone, which, as just mentioned, is really more like two megaphones glued together at the mouth. Wow, that's crazy. It's just it's just cool. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of times you go see things out in the desert, you go see this or that, and you're it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's kind of cool, but it's maybe ultimately disappointing. This is not disappointing. It's it's something that's well worth the time and effort to get out there and see it it's just it's just incomprehensible that it's there that nobody has claimed credit for it and uh yeah and and it's not famous <laughs> so you kind of put all those together and it's 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 a great destination so we we spent some time there took some pictures and uh even taking pictures was kind of hairball there i had to hang out over a cliff and I was like, well, if one of these rocks moves, it's, Jess is going to be calling a helicopter in to take me to the morgue. I, I was just going to yell through the megaphone, help, and see what happens. But Right, it would just bounce back <laughs> in your face. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so it was, It was. I, I, if you're listening to this and you live anywhere near the area, uh, if you don't, if you're not a, a desert, experienced desert rider, I wouldn't recommend traipsing out there. Uh, you definitely would need a four-wheel drive truck to get there you could you could do it in a four-wheel drive truck from Ledlow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you on an adventure bike. We also went, we had full knobbies on both bikes. We were not on the adventure bikes with the you know 50-50 street tires or the 90 street 10% dirt tires. These these bikes were as 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 aggressively knobbied as, as they could be because we you know we knew that we'd be doing some real dirt riding and not really sure what we were gonna see roadwise out there. Mm-hmm. And I you know I I was for the, for the first part, I rode the BMW and, and just rode the KTM, which fits our personalities. The uh, BMW, I, I really 
uh, enjoyed riding. And for the first part, it has really awesome suspension. Uh, someone would complain that suspension is too soft, but for me, the suspension, it just cut out the harshness of the parts, harsh part of the road. Uh, when there were square offs at some of the little uh, stream crossings, again, dry stream crossings, you get these little square edge hits. And even on a dirt bike, you can hit those and the back end can go flying around and it could be a wild ride. The BMW just boom, just just plowed through it and and just sucked it up and you you barely even noticed that you hit it and you could continue on so the suspension really impressed me uh the only problem with these bikes is the weight uh if they weighed 250 pounds they'd be awesome but they weigh 550 pounds so you have to be very respectful of that weight because when it starts to go in the wrong direction there's no muscling around and there is there is powering out which just does but if you power out you have to be supremely confident in your skills and willingness to like take a hard hit to, to use that, you know, that, that power advantage you have with an 850 twin. It's a, a V twin in the KTM case and the uh, vertical twin in the, uh, uh, well, I should say parallel twin because they're not quite vertical, the parallel twin in the BMW. And it's always fun to watch Jess ride because of the way he just goes for it and he makes it. And then you go, wow, I could, wish I could do that because if I twist, my, my head will not let me twist the throttle the way I, I want to in my head twist the throttle. The KTM 890R is, it's very deceiving because it is so smooth and so fast and so controlled. You can get up to triple digit speeds on a flat dirt road and feel pretty good about it. And you still need to slow that down. You still need to slow that 550 pounds down. So even though you have off-road ABS, which means you can lock up the back, but it has ABS on the front, which is really effective for turning, um, turning under the brakes, getting the back wheel and turning sharper, um, just like you'd spin it up on a track bike uh, to turn a little bit sharper. But um, it was uh, amazing. You know, I, I love that, that bike. It really kind of suits, suits me quite a bit. Um, the electronics on it, you know, is with traction control are, are you know, fantastic. The, the suspension holds up a lot higher than the GS uh, 850, but at the same time, um, it's different experience, like Don mentioned, that the BMW is a lot softer, the KTM is a lot more um, up in the stroke, so, um, so it handles really well. Don kind of mentioned, like, when these bikes get out of shape, they can get out of shape. You don't really bring them in. So there really isn't a wrong direction. It's just the direction you're going. Maybe it was intended, maybe it was not intended, but that's the direction you're going now. So you just have to reconcile that that's now where you're headed and make the best of that, that situation. So instead of powering out, I try to power in to wherever it's going. So if I am off track, I power into that and it typically will straighten out a little bit. But if you catch air on these bikes, you don't do any style like you would do on another dirt bike because that you will never get it. If you try to whip it out, it will never whip back in. So you don't do any of those uh, supercross style stuff on uh, any of these big heavy bikes. When you say the suspension is is up, do you mean it's like longer sus suspension? So it's just got a taller seat height or? Well, it, it holds up higher in the stroke. So I feel like it's higher in the stroke and I've got more available suspension. Um, that said, though, riding the BMW at slower speeds, because it, the suspension kind of mandates slower speeds, I didn't really notice any harsh bottoming, which I thought I would, because I first got on, I'm like, wow, this is really plush. I kind of feel like I'm 
floating in the stroke a little bit as opposed to being a little bit more um, static in the stroke on the KTM. Oh, okay. All right. I get it. And so when, after we, after we uh, uh, climbed down the hill, which was actually more scary than climbing up the hill. This is on foot. This is on foot, not on bikes. Yeah, yeah. Tony Bow could ride a trials bike up there, but I don't think many other riders could. Right. But uh, so uh, on the way down, we got down and we swapped bikes. And the next landmark was to the north was the railroad tracks, which we could see from the top of the mountain. You could see where the railroad tracks were. And I said, okay, I'm not sure where the crossing was. I tried to see on Google satellite. Wasn't clear exactly where we would cross, but I figured we'd figure it out. And that's part of the adventure. So Jess goes ahead. And then when I got to one Y, there's a there's wasn't just a Y, it was like a, a, a multi Y where there's all these different ways to go. And I was like, oh, so which way did Jess go? And I kind of guessed, and I guessed almost right, but right enough that I saw a bunch of people gathered by the railroad tracks up ahead. So I, I ride up, and as I get to the railroad tracks along the railroad tracks, it's sandy. It's like real sand, like sand that you would get in the Sahara Desert sort of sand. And so I get up to the, to the uh, railroad tracks and Jess is talking to these uh, guys uh, in uh, the side-by-sides about which way to go across. And he had been there a while. Well, first off, I think they were trying to, you know, they were discussing the merits of Bud Light over Modelo. Uh, so it was a little bit of a beer conversation they were having. But once I asked them how to get across the railroad tracks, they said we could go four miles to the right or we go three miles to the left. And so we kind of chose, well, let's go the three miles to the left because we basically had to cross right there where we saw the guys. There's just no crossing. No, there. actually, we went to the right. Well, I know, but for this, it doesn't really matter if it's right or left. We're just having a conversation. Well, I don't want somebody to go out there and then do the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, we should be using, you know, east or west then instead of left or right, but yeah whatever uh, we were going it was east yeah so what i would typically try to do i probably feel comfortable on the ktm is you just hit the railroad tracks on a bike and you pop over them. that's what you do on dirt bikes and you have to just fully commit and the suspension and with a gas on you will kind of like as you ollie on a skateboard you can pop the motorcycle over the railroad tracks if you mess up it can be bad and if you mess up with 550 pounds it can be even worse um, so that was not prudent. So we decided to go the short way, which was to the right, um, which I believe would have been east, Don? Yeah. Okay. Um, and we did see like a switching station, you know, so we're thinking, oh, in some trees and whatever down there. So we thought maybe that'd be a place that we could cross. And we get up there and all of a sudden, well, first off, there's a train coming. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's one thing that, uh, and I know there might be some history here. I can't really talk about that, but we did not want to mess with the train. Um, and uh, better judgment got us there. But we did find this little underpass. But uh, it was what, like five feet tall, this underpass, this little drainage underpass. And it had kind of a drop off on the other side because it's literally made for water to flow through. And it's not made for people. Um, but instead of going, you know, probably two and a half to three miles, if these guys are correct, out of our way down and then have to backtrack all the way back through the sand that Don mentioned. Uh, we decided to go under that. So we had to get off the bikes and keep the engine on and kind of clutch it through, ducking down because there's no way to walk the bike with the engine on. And then you kind of have to like take this little path off where there's this huge drop off. And so anyhow, we kind of managed each bike off of that. And we were pretty proud of ourselves because we just cut out a bunch of time. We didn't have to 
wrangle with the train. And uh, we even had, I don't know, we found something even the local guys didn't know about. Well, here's what I'll say. There is no way I would be able to get those bikes off of that. It's, it was a paved platform underneath. But then again, as Jess pointed out, a drop off on the, on, on the north side. And there was a little bit of somebody clearly put some rocks there and stuff so you could ride a dirt bike off of it. But, and I would be okay riding the dirt bike off of it, but these were two big adventure bikes with saddlebags. You know, they had the full aluminum cases on the sides, or I guess they're plastic cases on the KTM. And that meant you had to go farther to the left and you also had to make sure you did not hit the, the wall of this thing. Because if you did, that would just be nasty. Uh, so Jess was the one who uh, uh, had the uh, job of getting us off, off the platform, which he did great. I mean, you know, he, he, we, we moved the bikes around back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to aim them just right. And then he just went for it. And it was, and I was, I was, as I always am when I ride with Jess, I was impressed by his, his bravery and skill. And it, it makes it great because I get to go do things that I couldn't do normally uh, because I wouldn't I'd be like, oh, now what are we going to do? I'm going to turn the bikes around. There's no way I'm going off of this. But instead, we get to continue on our way. But maybe it would have been better, as it turned out, to have had to turn around and go back because what, what greeted us next was sand, the Kelso dunes. And the, 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 we had, we'd ridden back after we did this, we rode back to, to the side-by-side uh, -side guys and we said, okay, how do we get to uh, this road, Razor Road, that was supposed to take us back to the 40? And he said, oh, we'll follow the, we go, oh, follow the uh, fence line because it's a, the, to the, the, our area to the right is a, some kind of you know, natural protected area. And he said, just follow the fence line. When you get to the end of the fence, just make a left. And it's like, they make it sound really easy. Well, in a side-by-side, -side, it is really easy because it's sand and those things love sand. Unfortunately, big adventure bikes do not love sand. And this was sand, deep sand, bottomless pit sand, soft sand, whooped sand, and more sand. And I might not have mentioned, but there was sand. <laughs> well, um, sand riding on adventure bikes is its own discipline. Um, fortunately, when um, they, when they, when they being KTM, when they launched the KTM at the time, 790 uh, Adventure and Adventure R, they did it in Morocco. And we went to the Merzuga Dunes uh, where they race rallies, you know, North African rallies. And I was paired up with a KTM rally director, um, Spanish rally ace, Jordi. Um, and he kind of taught me how to ride in the sand. And you always, you keep it pinned, you keep the engine pinned and you just, use uh, the quick shifter and you click up two or three. When you slow down, you leave the engine pinned when you're slowing down. So then quick shifters kind of don't like to do that. You might have to use the clutch, but that means you're probably revving at six or 7,000 RPM downshifting from third to second. And so when you keep the RPM that high, when you're slowing down, you keep the front end light in the sand. So you don't want to touch the brakes really. You want to slow down using the engine, but keeping the revs high and using the transmission to bounce it down. So once you do that, as we all know, there's nothing below first gear. <laughs> so that's about as low as you can go in the transmission. So a lot of that sand was kind of first gear pretty pinned, um, which gets bikes hot. Although like Don mentioned, it was a nice cool day, day out in the summer. Um, but yeah, it's a little bit like uh, jet skiing, if you will, you know, in the sand, light in front, kind of going to the left or right keeping your arms loose, not trying to fight the bike, let it go where it wants to go. Um, so once you get into that rhythm, it doesn't take much energy, but 
if you're not in that rhythm, it could just be, you know, debilitating physically. Right. Now I'm a normal guy. And so <laughs> I was, I was running the, I was, I got, I had, we had switched bikes. So I was on the KTM at that point. And that probably was the only saving grace that I, I had the KTM rather than BMW. Uh, but I was running it in first the whole time. That was the most that I could do. And it seemed, and what would happen is I'd be going and I'd get a little bit of confidence. I'd get up a little speed. I'd be going and all of a sudden the front end would knife over and I'd be like, oh, great. You know, and then again, instead of just saying, oh, it's knifing over, I'm about to fall. I need to just whip the gas on full blast and then it'll straighten me up and to take me away. Well, uh, my bristle would do that. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of letting off. No brakes. I mean, it's funny. Jess mentioned you don't use the brakes. You don't need to use the brakes. As soon as you let off the throttle, the bike just stops. And so at least at the speeds I'm going. And anytime I looked down at my speedometer, it was like saying 11. That seemed to be like my magic number, 11 miles per hour. And and even though it was the winter time, a December ride, uh, the fan was on and I was I was worried that I was going to overheat this thing because I was using the clutch a lot to keep the revs up. You know, because if you drop down to five miles an hour on a, on a adventure bike, you're not, you know, that's not a lot of RPM. So I'm slipping the clutch in the sand and, uh, but I am keeping my speed going. I never fell, which was good because if you fall, it's very easy to dig a giant hole trying to get going again. So I was able to keep going and it was miles. I mean, it was like, they think they said four miles. It was at least four or five miles of this sand. And, and there was a couple of times where I was thinking, I'm just not going to make this. I, I, I can't do this. I can't wrestle this bike that far in the sand. And, you know, and every time you get to kind of like a little ridge or, or you know, when I say ridge, it's not much of one, but there's, you know, this, there's a little undulation. You think, oh, on the other side, it's going to be dirt. And it's like, no, it's the sand as far as I can see. You know, it's, it's like the mirage, you know, the, the movies, you know, like, oh, no, it's still sand. And so I'd stop at the top of little ridges so that I could get going, you know, it would be downhill to get going. But I, you know, I persevered, uh, you know, I, and part of it's because you have no choice. I mean, what am I gonna do? Park the bike, walk two miles in the sand to Jess and go, hey, Jess, could you ride the bike back for me? That would make <laughs> right. him have to ride, make him walk back two miles. Like, no, that's, I'm not gonna do that. Unless, you know, if I, if I do that, it's gonna be because I'm like unconscious laying on the side of the, on the trail or the dirt the sand dunes. And so uh, I, I kept at it and, and I made it and I get to Jess and Jess has, has stopped it. I think it's called Razor Ranch. Mm -hmm. And it, there is no ranch left, but it's a little bit of an oasis. Uh, there's a bunch of trees, some great shade, a uh, couple of swings. I have a picture of Jess on the swings. And uh, so it's cool. Uh, this, this little place here, if you were out there when it's hot, that would be an awesome little stop along the way and the one thing i was thinking while we were sitting there was that the uh if you, if you go on google maps and you put in mojave megaphone uh, from let's say barstow it tells you to go down razor road and then down this road that we had been to get to the to get to the uh mojave megaphone there's no way i mean you even you know in my four-wheel drive truck i would be you know, you'd want to have some real, you know, uh, all-terrain tires to make that trek. I mean, they, they shouldn't be sending people that way unless the person truly knows which way they're going. Uh, almost nobody's going to make it 
from the north. They all, if you ever want to, if you want to go there, approach it from the south, and you really want to have four wheel drive. A two wheel drive truck might make it. You wouldn't want to do it in a car. Uh, four wheel drive's better. But from the north, I, I just don't see that as like a, a viable four four wheel drive thing, unless you have a you know a, a vehicle set up specifically for the sand. So, in my mind, from the uh, from from this the stop that we had in looking at the maps, that was where we were supposed to make the left on Razor Road. But again, there's no there's no signs. Uh, the GPS on the uh, BMW was kind of ancient, prehistoric. I think Fred Flintstone designed this one, and uh, the one on the KTM, uh, what was Jess's phone? Was it your phone or no? It was a GPS that you had had bought. Yes. And it was, yeah, it's a new. Uh... Zoomy, Garmin Zoomy, but it wasn't hard. The power wasn't hardwired into the KTM because we had to give it back. And so we kind of had, so the power was just USB and that plug kept getting loose and it kept shutting off. So it wasn't really much of a help. Right. So I wasn't able to look. And so uh, I was still on the KTM at that point. And so Jess, again, hops on the BMW to take off so I don't get caught in the, the dust. But of course, like I said, two seconds after he's gone, the dust's gone. And then I, I look at the map and it says to make a left here, the Razor Road is right there. Now, two things. One, I can, there's no way for me to catch Jess. So I'm not gonna run, I'll, I'll, I'll just ride right up to Jess and tap him on the shoulder and go, hey Jess, uh, we need to go back this way. He's gone. And, <laughs> and looking to the left, it was, it was sandier. It was like kind of back through the dunes. So I was kind of like, eh, I don't really wanna go that way anyway. So we continued on the, the, the straight way which was towards one of our next stops that we're going to get photos at was the exit for Zizix Road off of Interstate 15 uh, to the north. And to get there, it's like, oh, uh, you know, everybody sees Zizix Road whenever they're on Interstate 15 between Las Vegas and Barstow. And, and they, oh, look, how do you pronounce that? What's that? How did that name get there? And anyway, so what, you know, we wanted to have kind of the generic shot of the bikes at Zizix Road. So I go, oh, well, we, if we go this way, we go by, there's a, the, uh, California, the UC uh, University, University of California system has some kind of desert uh, installation out there where they do research and stuff. And so we we're going to go by there. It's all closed because of COVID, but that didn't matter. We wouldn't have had time to do a tour anyway, but we would take the road to that and then make a left to Zizix Road. So I, in my head, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good map guy. I look at maps. I, I'm a good, I have a good sense of what I'm looking at. I can pretty much memorize it in my head where I'm supposed to go. And so we're going up there, and so we're taking this road, and all of a sudden, the road has a sign that says, you know, off limits, wilderness area. So even though, and this was on the GPS, it showed us to go straight on a road, you couldn't go straight on the road unless you were willing to ride into the, the, the prohibited area, which, which we really didn't want to do. And so we had to go a different way. So uh, we go to the, to the right and kind of follow the, the sign. The, 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 there's, there's a road out there, and, and we continued down the road. And again, it's, it's kind of, a, there's a little bit of sand, a little bit of challenging stuff along the way, but not quite as bad as it was. And then it gets out to a dry lake bed. And, and I you know, come up and there's Jess ahead and he's stopped and he's talking to some guys. And there's a, a few, uh, uh, I'll call them survival vehicles. And J Jess can probably describe them better than I can, but he's talking next to him, uh, talking to them next to this big giant pile of rocks, uh, probably about four feet high and 20 feet in diameter. And it's just a bunch of rocks out in the middle of this, not in the middle of the dry lake bed, kind of at the edge of the dry lake bed, but somewhere where there would be no rocks. 
And so the, obviously the rocks are put there. And then I remember that there's something called the Traveler's Memorial. And it's one of these, you know, group, <laughs> group sourced memorials where everybody brings a rock out and sets it there. And they write a little message on it, some, some people, and they put it on this on this uh, installation of rocks. And I guess as time goes, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> these are, you know, this is kind of the new overlanding crowd. We used to just call it, you know, Jeepsters or Jeepers or things like that in the past. But overlanding crowd, I think the one guy that we were talking to, I think it was a, a Mitsubishi Montero that was all kind of decked out. He had fuel and water and, uh, you know, tracks on the top to get out of the sand and shovels and apparently a lot of tequila. Um, and uh, so they were doing tequila shots. I think one of the guys had just bought the 1250 version of the BMW Adventure, that same 40 year anniversary, the yellow and black, with the, all the anodized. So he wanted to get pictures of that. Uh, I think they're real fanboys of what we were doing. Of course, they all brought rocks with their name or whatever, a message on it to throw in this big rock pile. Um, at that point in the evening, I kind of did evening, late afternoon, you know, it's wintertime, there's not a whole lot of sunlight. I kind of wanted to just keep beelining it and go, uh, but we needed some fuel for the KTM. So he was generous enough to give us a little bit of fuel. Um, he also told us that we had to climb up the rock pile because there's a message in the middle of the rock pile and you can't go to this rock pile and not climb up and view whatever secret message is. The only thing is, is once you view it, you can't tell anyone about it. So, of course, you know, we already walked up the Mojave megaphone. This 15-foot pile of rocks was no big challenge for us. So we climbed up there. We read the message. Can't talk about the message, but we read the message. Uh, came back down. And at that point, there was a whole other crew of overlanders coming, one of them with a bumper hanging off. And uh, then the guy turns to us and says, oh, yeah. If you go the way that they just came, there's a big G out, a big dip. Don't hit it too fast. And obviously that truck did and had the bumper hanging off. But um, yeah, that was an interesting sight. Not only the rock pile, but uh, you know the, the characters. Again, this is stage co stage uh, coach country, so you can run into all kinds of nefarious folks. Yeah, but these were super nice guys, and it was funny because when I got there, I, again I was on the KTM. When I went to get started, I noticed that the low light was low fuel light was on and I don't, I don't know how long it had been on because I wasn't kind of in the position to be monitoring that and so I I figured you know we could see they had fuel and so I said can we get like you know a half gallon or something because Baker was like 20 miles away and so not, it was you know we probably would have made it but you don't want to be you know you want to be sure so uh I I he goes oh yeah we got tons of gas so we pull over and he has a little spigot set up and he puts it in he pretty much filled the thing up with <clears throat> gas. I kept saying, no, that's enough, that's enough. He goes, no, no, you're good, you're good, you're good. And then I said, I said to him, I said, I'd offer to pay for it, but I know exactly what your answer would be. And he just laughed. And so it was a, a great Good Samaritan thing. Uh, we probably wouldn't have gotten stuck. We wouldn't have been totally screwed because the BMW was full and we, we could have gotten gas and brought it back. But it was, it was a big help to be able to get gas from those guys. And that, that was, and it was also a good lesson for me to remember, lesson that I already know, which is fill up. Don't say, well, half's enough. We're only going that far. You're out in the desert. You never know how far you're going or which direction you're going and how things are going to end up. So, I mean, who knows? I feel like I must have gone through two gallons of gas in that sand, you know, just going like five miles. Well, yeah, you know, 11, 11 miles an hour with it pinned in first gear. 
that's going to be that's going to drink a lot of fuel yeah for not very far traveled so then we hopped back on the bikes i think we swapped them at that point and uh i know we didn't i was still on the ktm and we went off across it's called soda lake there's a lot of soda lakes as you can imagine out there and this is another soda lake and we're flying across this you know there's kind of a a pathway across that that we would use we were going and along the way one cool moment i don't think jess liked it as much as i did but these two guys on side by side, like high performance ones, came flying by on both sides of us with the flumes of dust, like you would not believe. But it was very much like Thunderdome. It was pure Thunderdome the way these guys went flying by. And we're on the bikes and we're all grubby. They're they're looking, you know, crazy desert rat guys. And so that was a that was a cool moment. But we were able to make some good time on on that. And then we got to a, another spot where uh, there was. A, we had to make a left turn to go up to Baker. So while we were there, I said, oh, let's take a couple of pictures. And so just, I needed pictures of just riding the uh, BMW. So he gets on, does some rides. And I said, okay, well, well I guess got to go to Baker, get some gas. So before I can start the bike, just pops on the KTM, you know, like, so we swap back the bike. So I'm back on the BMW. Before I can get the, I get the bike started, just hopped on the KTM and he's taken off to keep the dust out of, of my eyes. So, there's one problem, and Jess, what was the problem with that plan? <laughs> well, the problem was, is, you know, I just beelined it on the KTM, because now we're out of the sand, so now we can really make haste. So, um, yeah, so great, I go, and I come up, to, I can see the freeway, I can see the thermometer at Baker, I stop, I wait for Don, no Don, I keep waiting, keep waiting, uh-oh, something must have happened, I can go back, it only took me five minutes to go basically five miles, because you can ride 60 miles an hour across the dirt, um, you know, on this kind of two-track road, but let me call him first, so I go to call Don, and I have reception, because I'm closer to the freeway, he has none, I put, I'm like, I'm going to keep the phone in my other pocket, so it's closer to me, in case he calls back, I put it in that pocket, and it goes cling, I'm like, oh, it just clanked off, the BMW key fob and I'm on the KTM and Don's on the BMW and I have the key fob. <laughs> so that was the aha moment. Like, oh. <laughs> and you know, it's we're losing daylight. And uh, so I get back on the key, KTM, go over, you know, just blaze back. It's, again, it's only five minutes, but this whole thing was probably 40 minutes. I'm guessing, Don. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's Don. He's there he has a few choice words for me i try to i try to inform him that this was a mutual decision <laughs> as i said to jess, as i said to jess and and arthur maybe you can back me up on this when i'm riding with somebody else i always at least make sure the other bike starts before i go yeah <laughs> kind of yeah like the, the like they start the bike and go you ready to go yeah let's go <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So anyhow, I knew that there would be a loophole where the blame would be a hundred percent placed upon me. So, um, well, yeah, I, I, I think it's just your excitement at riding the KTM, isn't it? I, I just love that bike so much. I do, I do. So I was just, you know, in a rapturous state, and I was not thinking. And I literally just banged gears. No clutch necessary. You've got the shift assist. It was out of there, and it wasn't that until I had that moment of clarity when I realized I have the key fob. And then I'm just thinking, like, I don't think I like the concept of key fobs for adventure bikes. But anyhow, I was looking for something else to blame it on other than myself. <laughs> oh well, actually, Jess brought up something real. It's really 
worth mentioning is is the two bikes had quick shifters and quick shifters are something you think of as moto gp or high performance street bikes but it works great in the dirt it is a great function to not have to let your hands completely off the handlebar to you know pull on the clutch to shift it's so great to be able to just click that and have it shift quickly so you don't lose any momentum uh quick shifter is is a great feature off-road right yeah absolutely agree it makes everything easier you don't realize how much you use it and how much you rely on it until you hop on a bike that doesn't have it and you start banging the gear shifter and it's not doing anything you're like oh i have to pull the clutch jeez what what century are we in i have to actually pull the clutch <laughs> another little side note jess the uh the new uh husqvarna 450 rockstar edition mm -hmm. uh motocrosser has a quick shifter wow Wow. Now it's, wow. it's, it, it only works from sec up shifting and from second to fifth. Mm -hmm. Now that's going to limit it on a super cross track because you probably only shift between second and third, but still for motocross or for off-road, that means, you know, that's coming for us for dirt bikes. Yeah. And, and, and that, like I said, all my dirt bike friends would look at me like quick shifter, like kind of like that, but boy, once you use it in the dirt, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. And so the adventure bikes with the great like hint at that. And so it's something that we have, I look forward to the next bikes, you know, testing the next few years are going to have that as a standard thing. And it's, it's going to be great. So anyway, so we got to Baker, nothing of excitement there, just filled up the bikes. And then it was uh, all pavement back to Ludlow, but it was, you know, you calculated in my head, we didn't have a lot of time before it got dark and uh, people that aren't familiar with the desert, would know that it could be 65 in the day but once that sun goes down it's in the 40s and 30s really fast right like that heat evaporates faster than you can imagine yeah so we wanted to make time so i would say that from baker to ludlow we were rarely under 90. oh yeah yeah it was triple digit it was way to go and that's what's great about these adventure bikes right that's where you're you know on the dirt you're on the sandy parts you're saying oh man i wish i was on a 450 dual sport bike but when you get out onto the pavement and you're doing 90 or 100, and there's really, there's just no adult supervision out there. There's no police. There's no cops. Uh, you know, they probably drive through there once a year. <laughs> but they probably drive through once a day to make sure there's nobody stuck out there or anything. But, but it's, you know, we'd, we almost saw no vehicles. We were, maybe saw one from the, for the 20 miles to the uh, Kelso Depot. And that was, we did make one stop at the Kelso Depot. And that was something that Jess wasn't familiar with. And, and uh, it's another one of those things where this one's not quite as unknown as the Mojave Megaphone because it's not a paved road, but it's a old school 1930s style, mission style train depot out in the middle of nowhere. And it's big. It's, it's not like this little tiny shack that you might expect out on some desert, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's a big building and it's, it's, uh, it had fallen into disrepair in the 70s and 80s, but it's 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 not a train depot now. It's a like kind of museum, but they fixed it up and it's really quite impressive. It was closed when we got there, which was good because we were able to pull up onto a authorized vehicles only area and take some some cool pictures. And if the Kelso people see the pictures later, they're like, hey, what are those guys doing? But uh, we weren't hurting or anything. But uh, Jeff was able to poke his head in and see there's there's like a restored diner that they have turned into a, a, 
a conference room. And what Jess didn't see, and next time we're out that way, we'll have to go up. Upstairs, they have like the museum where they have like the original chairs from trains or the chairs that were in the building and, you know, old magazines. It's really cool. It's, it's, it's probably 15 minutes north of uh, Interstate 40. So if, if you're driving out that direction, you know, if you have an extra hour, let's say, you know, 15 minutes each way plus a half hour there, it's totally, totally worth going to see this thing. Even just seeing it is 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 really cool. But in the interior of it is 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 outstanding and, and well worth the extra time to, to to check it out. But then we hopped back on the bikes and uh, we were like flying down the forty, and uh, again doing about ninety. You know, there wasn't much wasn't much traffic. Uh, we had a few trucks here and there that we had to deal with and some wind, and that was again we're talking about the big bikes it's when you get hit with those 30 or 40 miles the gusts of wind you're on, on a motorcycle you know that could be something but these bikes at least for me on the i was on the bmw then no problem yeah it, the speed is fine the wind on any adventure bike just with the you know geometry of the rake and trail it's not like being on a cruiser which is you know really stable and great for those side winds but um it was good as long as you have the right helmet because that's kind of you know right helmet and ear protection or whatever when you're doing those speeds with the wind on the freeway but the ktm was fine uh it doesn't have as much air you know kind of wind protection um for that type of stuff you know i think an aftermarket fairing the fairing or the uh the windscreen has two positions i did have it in the higher position uh and for my height and for the helmet that i had um the showy dual sport i could just kind of tuck into the bubble and it'd be okay yeah i was i was fine i i was riding a, wearing a, a rye xd4 mm -hmm. and just had the the showy hornet x2 mm -hmm. and uh you, you know people think that with that peak on the helmet that, that it's really bad at high freeway speeds but i've never really had much it'll pick up a little bit if you like are turning around to look what's going on behind you or something but the speeds we were going the you know it's just two lanes uh I'm not looking behind me, <laughs> you know, I'm not having to turn my head. I mean, I might peek into the rear view mirror, but you know, you're just kind of going ahead. And, it, and uh, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the XD4 and I think Jess is a big fan of the Shoei. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are, those are high quality adventure helmets. Yeah, and the and, sun was going down too. So having a visor, being able to dip the visor down so you can see the road, because we're riding into the sun for part of that is great. You don't have that on your typical, you know, visorless. Uh, helmet yeah yeah the peak the peak really made the difference of, of shading your face and eventually at the, towards the very end the, the sun did go behind the mountains so we we didn't arrive back in Ludlow until after sunset and but it had actually it was still reasonably warm anyway so we, we pull in and we load the I tell you know I make sure that they're, they're going to be open until six and it was about 4 45 when we got in so we decided to load the bikes first and change so that we you know, weren't there in this dust-covered adventure gear. And so uh, got back in normal clothes, parked the, bike in, parked the truck with the bikes in front, and uh, had a, a fun meal. Uh, Jess's burger looked good. <laughs> yeah, this guy, you know, I love, I love patronizing, and we always do. Like, Don, you always know where the little hole in the wall is, whether it's downtown L.A. or someplace in the valley or, you know, out where where we were, it's great to go to these little hole-in-the-wall places with local people, and the food was awesome. We had, like, soup, and, you know, it was just great. We're cold, and, um, yeah, it was really cool, and it just kind of seemed like a place that, um, 
didn't know we were in a pandemic, didn't know that uh, what, perhaps even what century it was. So it was that way. Yeah, they were definitely living in the 1900s. Yeah. And, but it, it's, yeah, just super friendly, very accommodating. And again, letting us park the truck, you know, in whatever spot we wanted, you right in front of the front door. We kind of moved it a little bit. I, I couldn't do that. I, I said, come on, just put it over here. It's like, okay. And uh, it's it's decked out in, in it's not even like it's decked out in old school. There's nothing retro about it. It's authentic old. <laughs> the decor is not retro. The decor right. is is left over. And so, and they, it's funny, they have funny little books at the table. So if you want to read a book, funny little book while you're waiting for your food, uh, you can do that. <laughs> and uh, there were some local guys in there and they were cool. It's just, everybody's cool. It was just a fun place to be. You know, uh, it's not, the super high-end kind of diner food that you might get at like Ed DeBevick's or something. It's like real authentic diner food that you would get in the fifties or sixties, which, you know, it's, it's cool. And they're, they're, they're worth tipping big, which I did. And uh, it was a, it was truly, what was great about it at, at the end of it was, it was an adventure ride. We had all sorts of unexpected turns and of events as we went. And, you know, that's kind of part of the, reason I didn't want to over plan it because if I over plan it then it's just like you're just kind of doing an exercise like do this now do this now do this now do this and then you're back right it's like okay we go out here I think it's here and then for here we go and I think we turn here kind of a lot of you know kind of left some of the mystery in it and that made it to me more of an adventure and if you ride an adventure bikes I want to have an adventure and of course, when you get back and it's all you survive the adventure, it's great. Now, if you get stuck out in the middle of the desert, the bikes, you know, it, no, there's no gas, and you're trying to figure out how to get to your truck 50 miles away. The adventure aspect of it's probably less appealing. But once the once the ride's over, the 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 unexpected obstacles that you ran into and overcame are certainly part of the ride. And it's great to have Jess with you because you kind of have that confidence that no matter what happens. Jess will figure it the way out because Jess, Jess has had some adventures that I can't even imagine going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's even more so when, so the, the ride planner, Don, does little planning to have more adventure, but then the person who did absolutely no planning, me, is the one who's leading based on the verbal instructions from the person who did little planning. So with that type of scenario, we're definitely going to get up to some adventure for sure. Right. Right. So the only moral of the story is make sure that the other bike started before before you head out. But other than that, it sounds like all good. And and start with full tanks in both bikes. And start with full tanks of gas. Yeah. And okay. that's 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 one that I know it's really dumb. So right. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's only 40 miles. You know, it's like, OK, yeah, it's only 40 miles. Yeah. But but with a large proportion of it pinned in first gear. Well, but it turned out to be much farther than that because we didn't we didn't make that left on Razor Road and go to the gas station at Razor in the 15. We ended up not getting gas until Baker, which was considerably farther away. <laughs> yeah, these big heavy adventure bikes, though, you kind of want to cheat because they have big fuel tanks. And so you don't always want to top them off because the sweet handling is right around that two and a half, three gallon mark. So when you top them off and they get kind of top heavy and so, you know, cheating is something that we kind of try to do or we do do. But I think the other moral of the story is sand happens. It's everywhere in the desert. So, you know, you're going to run into it at some point. And you do notice that, the, and and just, I think agrees with me on the, that the low fuel tank, that very unorthodox position of the fuel that it's down by the engine, you know, below 
the cylinder, you know, next to the cases, having probably three, what is it, about three of the gallons there, mm -hmm. it makes a huge difference in how the bike handles without all, you know, that extra 20 pounds above the engine. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of the killer app on the KTM is that rally style tank. It's also what makes the fuel gauge kind of notoriously inaccurate because you've just got these two saddlebags of fuel. It's kind of hard to really gauge um, in there. But yeah, the three gallon mark is awesome because all three gallons are down by your feet um, and it just handles like a dream. You don't want that top heavy feeling in, in soft, you know, squishy sand. Right. The, pro the, the KTM's fuel gauge basically, it doesn't start working until it's, it's at halfway. Right. Right. If you have over half, you don't know how much over half. It could be one drop over half, or it could be three or four gallons over half. Yeah. So you, you know, you think, oh, I'm fine. Well, I've got plenty. Oh, the lights on now. What am I gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> That's been confirmed by their engineers too. So they they kind of know that. <laughs> yeah, they need to. They need to. They, the, the engineers need to figure out a solution to that rather than knowing it. <laughs> right. You know, my solution is just use the odometer and, uh, you know. Yeah, which we didn't do. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like an absolutely epic ride. Thank you so much to you both for, for recounting that. Yeah, it was fun telling it. Yeah, absolutely. That was fun. It was fun retelling it because we got to re rewrite it through in our heads. What a pair of hooligans, bro. And every bit of it is true. We didn't embellish anything. <laughs> right. All right. See you guys. All right. Thanks, folks. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.